0: Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. This is episode 868, my interview, my second round with Lisa Feldman Barrett. It is a replay episode and we're discussing her research and book, How Emotions Are Made. Enjoy. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to the Hidden Why Podcast. This is a replay episode today, guys. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a really good New Year, and I hope you've got some good plans coming into this year, 2020. I'm certainly shaking things up again here at the Hidden Wire Podcast. What we're going to do is a long-form and a short-form interview, and I'm going to try and do a solo rant as well, sharing a conversation that I'm interested in, maybe a book review, something like that. If you want to listen to the format going forward this year, listen to episode 865 Today, I'm sharing my second round with Lisa Feldman Barrett. We're discussing her book and research on how emotions are made. It's an interesting topic, and I wanted to bring her back on for a second round because the first round, I felt a little bit rusty, and I felt I really didn't get to the heart of the questions that I wanted to ask. So that's why we have a round two. So if you've listened to it and want to listen again, please do. If you haven't, then this is a great interview, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Reach out anytime you like. I can be reached at thehiddenwhiteguy at gmail.com. Um, or probably, if you want to get me on social media, Facebook Messenger would be the best chance there. I'm not always online doing that stuff. Um, you'll see my posts, etc. But you can certainly reach me that way, and I will respond uh, when I see it. Guys, thank you, and have a great start to the year. Please enjoy this interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett. Cheers. Hello. Are you there? Can you hear
1: me? I am. I can now.
0: Oh, good. Good morning. Or well, good afternoon. Good
1: Good afternoon, how are you?
0: I'm really well, I'm excited to have you here
1: Thank you, so sorry about the mix-up
0: Oh, with the times? Yeah No, 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 don't be apologetic Um, It's one of those things, isn't it? It's tricky
1: (laughs) Yes, it is, yes it is Um, Particularly when you're travelling, it's just, uh, you know, hard to keep track of where you are exactly
0: No, not a problem, look, I'm glad we could make it Absolutely. Um, thanks for coming back. How's the uh, the book going? It's it's one of my favorite reads. I think I mentioned that in an email, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm glad to. Thanks
1: so much.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: it's still doing super well. You know, kind of going gangbusters. So that's good.
0: Well done. <laughs> well done to hey. you. All Thank that, you. All that hard work and research pays off. Indeed. Um, so look, that's what I really wanted to get you back on, just to discover a few thoughts. Um, I suppose just to go into a few. Few thoughts from reading the book that I had from it as well, Um, and yeah, just to get your perspectives on those. Um, Is there anything that you wanted to touch on in particular? I know I've been no,
1: no, not at all. I'm happy to respond to whatever questions you have.
0: Okay, cool. So what we'll do, we'll just um, start uh, straight into the conversation, Um, and we can, uh, yeah, I can do the introduction. Uh, in the pre-recording so we don't need to go into that and then we can just jump straight into questions and probably i guess go for about i don't know 30 minutes depends on how how thoroughly we thoroughly we need to talk about the questions i guess perfect sound good
1: that sounds great
0: give me a sec when was it we spoke last about uh six months ago 12 months
1: Yeah, more like a... I think it was more like a year, actually. Was
0: it? Yeah. Okay. Episode 423. Uh, Oh, no, that wasn't it. That was your book review. I've actually reviewed your book online as well.
1: Oh, well, thank you.
0: Six. Okay, let's go. G'day, Lisa. Welcome back to the Hidden Wire Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me back.
0: Yes, no pleasure to have you here i um I absolutely loved reading your book and um our previous interview as well episode three hundred and ninety six so I had to get you back on here because I felt I was ill prepared uh, for that interview to be honest um and i was whilst I was reading your book at the time, there was probably a lot of learnings that came after uh, reflecting on all your work that was um highlighted throughout the book as well so I wanted to bring you back to um perhaps just discuss a few of these questions that have been whirling around in my head. Um, so hopefully we can do that today.
1: Very, very happy to talk about the
0: book. So, uh, first of all, how is it in your world? What's, uh, what's happening in your life?
1: Well, um, I'm in Boston right now. It's sunny and we're between blizzards. We just had one last week Mm. and, uh, apparently there's another one coming. So, um, kind of unusual for the end of March to see this much snow so quickly but it's uh it's an adventure.
0: Okay, you hear that a lot at the moment um unusual weather patterns we've just had um which isn't quite unusual we've just had fires <laughs> go through the south of Australia and Victoria. Wow. wow. And lots of flooding up north.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: So, that's,
1: yeah, that's that sounds uh horrible actually.
0: Yeah, some some pretty um severe extremes anyway. But um, look, look, um, I hear the book is going well and I I have reviewed it on this show. I want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy because I think it's um, absolutely outstanding, the the research that goes into that book. And whilst it is, you know, for for, I suppose the unexperienced, it can be a little bit hard to get your head around at times. Um, Once you reflect on it and pause and read over it again, uh, it does sink in and and there's just so much value I've found by reading it um, in the way that I suppose I reflect and operate my life, um, which is quite amazing. So that's why I've um, really appreciated reading it. So guys, I'm gonna stick the link in the show notes again for you to have a look, and I'll stick the, um, the link to my review on there as well. I've had some favorable feedback um, from, from current listeners about that book review as well. Um, the first question I wanna ask you, Lisa, is why is the study of emotion important, not only to yourself, but important overall?
1: That's a great question. And I, you know, why it's important to me, I would say, is um, as I discuss in the book, you know, I was faced with uh, a puzzle Um, when I was in graduate school. I was not studying emotion. It was never my intention to study the nature of emotion. I was more interested in studying topics related to the self, you know, what makes you who you are? How do you know who you are? How do you evaluate yourself? Um, those kinds of questions. And um, I was using measures of emotion that were not performing well, you know, that just weren't, they weren't performing in the way that you would expect them to. And my first assumption was that, you know, I was doing something wrong until I ran eight studies and found that in fact, it's the measures themselves that were flawed. And I Um, you know, I thought it would be really straightforward. I was very naive um, as a graduate student. You know, I thought, well, I'll just go to the literature. I'll just um see how other scientists measure emotion you know everybody knows that there are six basic emotions that are wired into your brain at birth everybody knows that uh, each emotion is expressed with a specific facial expression that everybody around the world makes and recognizes you know so people scowl in anger. So a scowl is an anger expression and everyone knows how to make that expression and they all know what it means. Um, and so on and so forth. And what I, you know, cause that's what we're all taught in, uh, in textbooks and that's what, you know, is in our popular culture. And it turned out that that's actually not true. That, um, when I looked at the evidence, it's really clear that, um, people, sometimes scowl in anger, but they often don't. In fact, probably about 80% of the time in studies of anger, people are not scowling and they often scowl at other times, um, when they're not angry, you know, when they're concentrating, um, or, um, when, you know, uh, they're afraid sometimes. And, um, uh, when they're just feeling disgust and so on. So, the, what we see about facial movements, we also see for bodily changes and for patterns of brain activity. There's really no um, pattern of physical changes that we can measure that uniquely identify any emotion. And I thought, well, this is, you know, there are two things that are really interesting about this. One is that people believe that there are these fingerprints that you can use to diagnose what emotion that someone's in and in fact uh, there aren't so why and it's not like this evidence is new it's been around for a really long time so why do, why do the beliefs persist in spite of the scientific evidence and i thought that was pretty interesting and then i also thought it's really interesting to try to figure out well what how your brain and your body work together to make emotion because frankly i every day of my life experience happiness and gratitude and awe and i experience anger and um you know fear and uh and so on and so how is it that my brain makes these emotions in concert with my body how is it that uh you know other people can look at my face and my body posture and my uh, uh the listen to the acoustics of my voice and make guesses about wh- what i'm feeling and do it in a really automatic way to me, this seems like uh, a really interesting question. And so it captivated me. It's captivated me for the last 25 years of my career. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, and I, I, you know, I have thoughts about why people's beliefs have persisted all these years when the evidence, the scientific evidence suggests otherwise. Um, but I think it's important for people to understand the nature of emotion, how their brains and bodies work in concert with other people's brains and bodies to make emotion. And I think it's important because it, emotion is part of every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, having the wrong understanding of emotion is harmful. It's harmful in, in, medicine in it's harmful in national security it's harmful in the classroom it's harmful in the courtroom it's harmful people are hurt actually by um believing the wrong thing and they're not helped when they could be and i i have to say you know for me that was a slow realization Mm. I, for many years, people would say, you know, I'd be at a dinner party and I'd be telling people about the research and how, uh, counterintuitive it is. And, you know, people are pretty captivated by it. And, um, their, um, attitude was usually, well, this, you know, makes really good entertaining party conversation, but why is it actually important? And my attitude, you know, was always kind of, um, not helpful, I think. I, I was my attitude was well. Look, you know, we don't ask physicists this question. We don't ask chemists this question. We don't ask biologists this question. Um, we are interested in whether the Higgs boson exists just because it's there, uh, just because it's a question. So we don't we don't hold other sciences to this standard. And so we should just be interested in how the brain and body work because we're interested in how that, you know, just for curiosity's sake. And then in 2013, I I was working with a journalist who was writing an article about me and my work. And she came to me and she said, you know, my editor wants to know who cares. So so people are using the wrong um, ideas about emotion. Who cares? And, you know, so I gave her my kind of standard kind of defensive scientist story. And she said, no, no, but I need to know, like, who cares? (laughs) You know, like, why should anybody care? And Mm -hmm. so she really motivated me to sit down and think about it. And when I actually started to spend a little time looking into the question, I realized, in fact, it's really serious that um, the government has spent close to a billion dollars, wasted money, in the United States um because they had the wrong beliefs about emotion. There are people who present themselves in emergency rooms I- around the world and die uh, because uh people the positions and they themselves are using incorrect beliefs about emotion. So I discuss some of these examples in my book. Uh and I think anybody who wants to um um, be more in control of their own lives, be more of the author of their own story, um, be more of the architect of their own experience, really needs to understand how the brain and the body work to make emotion and that information arms you and protects you uh from other people who will make mistakes.
0: Yeah, well. Um couldn't have said <laughs> that better myself. Um, certainly that's, that's how I feel is that, you know, by understanding from reading your work, um, you know, I have understood myself, I've understood how I'm relating to the world and how I can alter my experience to best benefit, um, my happiness and also reduce my levels of suffering, um, that usually are self-incurred anyway. Um, so that's, that's sort of what I take about it. And I love all those other points about, you know, why emotions are so, important for our society overall um, because if we're diagnosing um, how someone feels um, or how we feel someone might believe or perceive the world uh, it could um, you know how we then behave on that could have you know detrimental effects at at times as well like you said. Um, How how does it help actually the first question I might ask is do all our behaviours stem from our emotions like is is all our behaviors how we act in in each moment a result of our emotions and how we feel
1: well i might change the question that you asked me a little bit um you know because um how we feel is not the same question as our emo what emotions are so this is uh, i think maybe one of the insights that comes from, you know, decades of research, uh, that people find pretty, um, pretty counterintuitive until I explain it. And then it makes a lot of sense usually. Um, and that's the following, uh, way to think about it, that, um, your brain is not wired, doesn't come pre-wired to make emotions, but it does come pre-wired to make, physical feelings like comfort, discomfort, agitation, calmness, yep. feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant. These are not emotions. These are simple feelings that are part of every waking moment of your life. Oh, so they it's give you. it's
0: important to differentiate between the feeling and the emotion.
1: Well, I would say sometimes emotions, sometimes these feelings become emotions, but they don't always. So Basically, here's the way that I would explain it. Your brain did not evolve, no brain evolves in order to think or feel or see or hear or what have you. Your brain evolved to control your body. Um, As bodies get bigger and more complex with more systems, brains get bigger and more complex with more systems. And you can think about your brain as kind of the financial office of a company, you know, so just in the same way that a financial office of a company is tracking revenues and expenditures so uh, that the company doesn't go, you know, bankrupt, Mm -hmm. um, your brain is kind of doing the same thing. It, while it's creating thoughts and emotions and perceptions and so on, it's also managing a budget for your all the accounts in your body. Like, do you have enough water? Do you have enough glucose? Is your heart beating fast enough? And so on and so forth. Um, there's a technical term for keeping these accounts in balance. It's called allostasis, right? You're, basically, your brain is attempting to keep all of the systems of your body in balance Um, in a metabolically efficient way. And it's doing that by attempting to anticipate the needs of the body and then meet those needs before they arise. So, for example, if your brain is going to stand you up, it raises your blood pressure before it stands you up. Otherwise, you know, enough oxygen won't get to your head and you'll fall and you'll hurt yourself, and that will be metabolically costly. And so when your body... Um, systems are uh, in balance, you feel pleasant. When they're out of balance, you feel um, discomfort or unpleasantness. When your brain is predicted well, you feel calm. When it hasn't predicted well and you need to learn something, um, you feel agitated. These simple feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, comfort, discomfort, and so on. They give you a quick summary of what's going on in your body like a barometer without much detail. Mm -hmm. And they're with you every waking moment of your life. And sometimes your brain turns them into emotions when they're particularly strong. But they also are part... These simple feelings are also part of thoughts and they're also part of um, perceptions of the world. So, you know, if some guy cuts me off on the highway... Um, I don't, my experience is not boy, I'm angry at him. It's what an asshole for cutting me off on the highway. The, um, these simple feelings, which scientists call affect become part of a perception. You know, they become um, part of the person, a characteristic of the person, like that's a bad guy. Um, you know, that's a delicious drink. That's a beautiful painting. We're often embedding our simple feelings in perceptions of the world. Sometimes, though, we make emotions out of them. Here's the thing. When you have um, these simple feelings that come from your brain managing your body budget, um, it's like a barometer of what's going on inside your body but without a lot of detail. Hmm. And without that detail, you don't know how to act and you don't know what you need to do to keep yourself alive and well. So your brain links these simple feelings to what's going on around you in the world. And that it's that linkage that your brain, your brain making sense of sensations in your body and in the world that causes your actions. So what your brain is doing basically is it's guessing what you need to do next, what's gonna happen next, what sensory inputs are gonna happen next. And it starts to prepare your behaviors, your actions. Um, it starts to anticipate them. It starts to prepare the muscle movements to make an action based on the learning that you've done in the past, like what happened yeah. in, uh, in the past in mm-hmm. a similar situation. And, um, and sometimes those predictions just, uh, you know, um, are confirmed by the world, and you act like a baseball player preparing to swing at a ball, um, and then sometimes, uh, you know, you um, those predictions are wrong, and they have to be corrected, um, and um, so we usually call that learning. You know, when your brain takes in new information from the world to correct a prediction, um, and so we have names for these processes. We call them, you know, automatic processing and controlled processing or we call them system one and system two but the idea is that your actions are are um, linked to um, these simple feelings that you have Um, but only sometimes does your brain make emotions out of them so is emotion caused by actions i mean or, or sorry are actions caused by emotions strictly speaking no uh, they're not, but, um, actions, um, caused by these simple feelings, not exactly. They're both the result of the same budgeting process that your brain is, um, is okay. using. Yeah.
0: So as the brain is an operating system designed to keep, um, I guess the body functioning and, and, uh, you know, allow it to survive, I suppose is the ultimate purpose. Um, from that, we, we have feelings and then it is up to the brain to predict how to bring balance to that through action. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I would say that's a... That's Just simply
0: a, sort of trying to summarize it in my head.
1: Yeah, you know, here's the thing. Um, uh, I've gotten a lot of compliments about the book uh, because it tries to take very non-intuitive ideas and try to make them straightforward. And so it, I think the thing for people to realize is, um, that, uh, that the difficulty in understanding how the brain actually works, um, doesn't come from scientists being needlessly complex. Uh, the fact is that our simple ideas of how the brain works, you know, there's a stimulus, it triggers and a behavior on your part, um, you know, doesn't work. I mean, the brain just doesn't work like that. And, um, instead the way to think about it is, uh, exactly the way that you said, you know, think about a baseball player, you know, a baseball player, when a baseball player is attempting to, um, is up to bat. Um, it's like, a a game of deception between the batter and the pitcher. You know, the pitcher is preparing to throw the ball and the batter is preparing to swing at it.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, The batter doesn't wait to see the ball before he swings. Uh, If he does that, if he waits till he consciously sees the ball and then swings, he won't be able to, yeah, he'll miss it. He can't possibly execute those motor movements fast enough. It's just the wiring doesn't allow it. So his brain is, preparing him to swing at where he predicts the ball will be. And so he's making a prediction and his actions are based on those predictions. And then of course the pitcher is attempting to like psych him out and make him predicting correctly. And so your brain works basically the same way as a pitcher's brain. Your brain is making a prediction about what you need to do next yeah. in order to keep yourself alive and well. And sometimes those predictions are correct and sometimes they're not. And if they're not, then you have to learn. So,
0: um, so all those predictions that are occurring in that example, because um, it's quite a good um, example to explain it, that that's producing a level of feeling in our body based on how the biological body is, is operating. And, and, you know, cause obviously it's probably very intense for that baseball player. He's trying to be calm um, and that's helping him in the process of, predicting and then behaving
1: exactly so here's the really cool thing uh, or one really cool thing about how we're wired you know we're wired for example to see the world in a lot of detail there are a lot of contrast a lot of color a lot of detail to what we see Hmm. same thing with hearing we're designed to hear in a lot of detail but we don't feel our own bodies in a lot of detail we're not wired to do that and with good reason you know because If we were wired to feel every ache and every tug and every um, pulse, we would never pay attention to anything in the world ever again. So the inner parts of your body are kind of a mystery to you um, by design. And philosophers call it tragic embodiment. It means, you know, if you were um, aware of every single sensation in your body, you'd, you'd, you'd basically wouldn't be able to pay attention to anything in the world, you'd just be, you know, think of either, you know, the example, yeah, the example, you know, the example, uh, that uh, people sometimes use is, you know, you can be captivated listening to something on the radio while you're in the kitchen, um, and um, you know, listening to something really important on the radio, and uh. Slice your finger with a knife, you know, just nick it a little bit. And in that moment, all your attention goes to your own body. Nothing else matters in that moment because the sensations are so strong, even for a tiny little nick. And it's not because you're making a moral statement like, "Oh, that little nick on my finger is more important than anything else going on in the world." It's just you can't help it; it's the it, the sensations are too strong, and so that's why we we what we experience our bodies typically um, as uh, these simple feelings, these this barometer of feeling pleasant or unpleasant, and so on. And that requires the brain to basically make a guess about why. These, where do these simple feelings come from? What caused them, right? So, an ache in your stomach um, could be caused by disgust. It could be uh, a moment of longing um, for someone else. It could be, um, you know, uh, nausea because you have the flu starting up. It could be um, anxiety. It could be um, any of those reasons. And your brain kind of consults the, environment consults the world to try to make a decent guess for um what caused those simple feelings in this particular situation that you're in
0: okay and then through the through the action or behavior that will cause um potentially the emotion exactly yeah yeah, it's really yeah, it's interesting stuff to understand all how that works. And that's put a lot of more clarity in my head around the emotion and feeling aspect of things as well. Um, I suppose if, if, if we are operating in a constant state of prediction, which is explained in your book, what does that mean about choice and free will?
1: <laughs> you're not asking me like a very small question here you know
0: no well, um, yeah no and again it's, it's one of those questions that i really haven't understood yet because i often think about well hang on if this theory this constructionist theory i think that's what you call it is is how we're designed how do we then you know make well how do we then think about how we can possibly make the right choices moving forward
1: Right, so I think this is something that I talk about in the book, and um I'll just make a couple of points here that are yeah. salient. One is that, um, when I call this a theory, I'm using scientific language here, so colloquially theory you know in everyday language, if you and I were just in a coffee shop and uh, I referred to a theory, you might take that to mean a bunch of ideas, like it's my theory that you know the sky is blue or the world is round or sure. whatever. Yeah. Um, but in science, a theory is a set of ideas that are backed up by a lot of data,
0: hmm.
1: um, a lot of evidence, you yeah. know? And yeah. so, um, that, when I call this a theory, I'm referring to it in the scientific way. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, I think one important thing to understand. A second thing to understand is that, um, the whole idea, the whole debate over free will exists, I think, or maybe in large part exists because people ignore the, um, the time dimension of um, decision making. So if you had no free will, if things were completely deterministic and you had no Decision-making ability, no choice. Basically, you would be like a sea urchin, you know, or um, an animal who, um, you know, whose um, sensory neurons are wired directly to their motor neurons. You know, a stimulus requires a response. Yeah, but that's not how we're wired. Um, in fact, there are very few animals in the world who are wired like that. Um, so, here's what I would say: our brains use the past to make predictions about what actions to take in the future. And most of those predictions occur, you know, in the blink of an eye, automatically, under the hood, under your um, threshold of awareness. You're just not even aware of doing it. Um, that's how we're wired. But the predictions are probabilistic. They're not deterministic. They I mean your brain is basically calculating the probabilities that the, its guess is right, um, that's the first thing to know, and the second thing to know is that um, your brain is what neuroscientists call generative, meaning that it can take bits and pieces of past experience and combine them in new ways um, to make predictions. So, are you know, are your predictions under the control of uh, the environment? Yeah, to some extent they are, but if you know that then it means that you can cultivate experiences for yourself that will seed your brain to predict differently in the future. And that's, um, uh, one way that you can exert, um, control that you can have, uh, what philosophers would call free will. You can, um, deliberately invest effort in cultivating experiences and actions that, Seed your brain to predict differently in the future you do have um, circuitry in your brain that will put a kind of a break on a prediction um, so that you can take in new information from the world that you didn't predict um, that's what we call processing prediction error or you know yeah. learning learning <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's you know, that's, uh, and so that's, I suppose, another way, um, of, uh, of exacting free will, but basically even something like, um, free will is probabilistic. It's not deterministic. So that's because that's just how neurons, when you have billions of neurons that are, um, wired together, that's, that's what happens. Things are you know, the brain's making probabilistic guesses. um, And the horizon of your control is much broader um, than um, making decisions in the present moment.
0: Yeah, okay. So we can certainly, um, you know, put effort and energy towards um, the future experience and even just by pausing or, or, you know, even developing awareness, I suppose, that will help us better understand how we could perhaps... Uh, act going forward does that make sense
1: yeah i think look you, you you know the way that i the analogy that i would use is um your brain has a, some like all-purpose ingredients and it uses them to make mm. thoughts and, and emotions and um to make decisions about action it, you know kind of in the same way that you know you can go into most kitchens in the western world and find flour and water and um, salt. And you can make a lot of different recipes out of those ingredients. Yeah. And some, some of them aren't even food, you know, like glue, for mm. example. Um, but uh, the quickest way to modify how something tastes is not to add ketchup or butter or salt. It's to change the recipe. So if you know the recipe um, for how emotions are made, then you can change your emotions um, at will. And there are basically three types of ingredients that your brain uses. It uses sensations from your body that come from running the body's budget. It comes from, that's one domain of ingredients. Another domain of ingredients is what's going on in the outside world uh, that, you know, your brain's going to use to make sense of the simple feelings that come from your body. And the third is the past experiences that your brain um, will draw on to create that meaning. And you can change any of those three. You yes, can do so we things we that
0: have control over each of those.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for example, you can make it easier for your brain to control your body and, um, keep your body budget in balance. You can get enough sleep. You can eat properly. Um, you can get enough exercise. You can, you may think, well, that, how does that, you know, affect my emotions? But it does actually, I mean, the one thing, if you only could do one thing differently, to um, improve uh, your, these simple feelings that come from your body, which some people call mood, you know, scientists call affect, it would be to get enough sleep, frankly, uh, which many people don't do. Um, another thing you can do is pay attention to the world differently. You can actually change your environment by literally picking yourself up and going for a walk or um, going into another room, or you can figuratively change the environment you're in by being mindful, be paying attention to details that you normally wouldn't pay attention to by being mindful. This allows you much more control much more freedom to make different emotions, to make sense of your body, the sensations in your body, these simple feelings that come from your body in a different way. Hmm. Um, because you are uh, controlling, not physically, um the environment that you're in, but you're changing what you're paying attention to, what's in your um niche, uh is the technical term that scientists would use at that moment. What was that term? Um, niche. Niche. Yeah. It just means like the parts of the world that matter to your well being.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and then you can also change your past experience. Um You can't go back and change the past, but what you can do is um, create, cultivate new experiences for yourself that wires your brain um, to predict differently in the future.
0: Yeah, which I love. I love that thought. Um, I suppose in past experience too, I mean, we can really just by understanding how we think about those experiences, we can probably alter that as well, just in the process of reflection and thought.
1: Yes, well, what you're doing in the process of reflection and thought is you're bringing to mind um, different past experiences and combining them in a new way. I think the bottom line here is that you're not at the mercy of mythical inborn emotion circuits that are lurking deep inside some animalistic ancient part of your brain. That's a myth. You know, that's a story about human nature, but it's not really how the brain uh, works.
0: Why are some, um, I suppose people in the, this, the field of neuroscience suggesting that free will doesn't exist? Like what is in just a quick sort of summary, what, what is the argument there?
1: Well, I think the argument is that, um, it's not really clear, you know, who's, who's in control. I mean, you're, it's not like you are, you're, um, who you are exists separately from your brain. And so um, if your brain is causing your actions, um, the idea, sometimes people misunderstand the idea of free will as making the c- argument that, well, if your brain is causing your actions, then free will involves something else controlling your brain. Right. And that, that's just, that's just a misunderstanding of, um, of how the brain works. Basically, your brain is in control of your actions, but it starts to prepare your actions, right? Like a baseball player, it starts to prepare your actions before you are aware uh, that your brain is preparing to move your body. So the issue here is that a lot of what goes on under the hood um, you're just not aware of it, but it's not as if it's happening. something else is controlling your brain your
0: right, brain so if is we're controlling. not aware of it, then how can we say that we have choice?
1: right, but you do have choice, you just have to understand that what it what it means to have choice is maybe something different than you thought
0: yeah, okay yeah, because certainly once it comes into the, the field of consciousness um, that's that's the moment that we get to you know decide on how we Which to proceed from there uh, in part, isn't it? Like, I mean, I know there's some things that we'll just react to. um, Like if, like I think I used an example where I touched a hot hot pot that was on my stove and I didn't realize I left the stove on and I went to grab the handle and I burnt my hand and immediately um, I was already, uh, you know, reacting to the error of prediction. Uh, Yeah,
1: so what's really interesting is that sometimes um, people – um, you know, touching a hot pot's a good example. Sometimes people will, um, we re-, re they'll, um, react to that prediction error, um, before they feel anything. And then the burning sensation starts to happen. It's not like the burning sensation necessarily happens. And then they move their hand. Hmm. It's that they, they realize they've touched something hot. They move their hand. And then a second later, they start to feel it. And the, 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 The thing that philosophers, the distinction that philosophers would make is they make a distinction between something you're conscious of and something you're aware of. Um, So you can be conscious of many things that are not in the foreground of your awareness. So, for example, um, Lee, right now, you know, you and I can't see each other. So are you you sitting down right now or standing up? No, sitting down. Okay. So there are experiences that your brain is conscious of, but not aware of yet, but I'll say something and then it will bring those experiences to the forefront of your awareness. Um, so for example, um, can you feel the seat of the chair pushing up against your legs or against, uh, back of the chair pushing against your back? Yeah, can you feel that? Yeah, but did you were were those sensations in the foreground of your experience before I mentioned them?
0: No, absolutely not.
1: Exactly, exactly. So that's an example of being aware, being conscious of something, but not being aware of it. Meaning, it's not in the foreground of your experience, and um, this happens all the time. It happens with sights and sounds and um, smells. And it also happens with these simple feelings. Sometimes they're the focus of your attention. Sometimes they're just kind of in the background, like background noise, you know, like air conditioner or heater glowing that you kind of ignore. Um, But if it wasn't there, you'd you'd realize it. Um, You know, it's kind of like salt in baking, right? When you taste bread or a cake or something, you don't taste the salt. It's just in the background. But if it was missing... If it was missing, (laughs) you'd totally notice it. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So the issues about free will, the confusions about free will, are a little bit have to do with this um, confusing or equating awareness and consciousness when um, they're actually not the same thing.
0: Yeah, well put. Thank you for clarifying that. That's been a question that's uh, been on my mind for a while. Sure. Sure. Look, it's been uh, awesome again to to go over all this information, and I hope um, you know it's, it hasn't been the same as last uh, our last chat. So, for the audience listening out there that may have listened to both episodes, I hope you've gotten more out of this as well. Um, I certainly have. I want to understand um, the the circle um, here from uh, emotions that arise and how that results back into our, uh, I suppose, our body experience, and therefore our 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 brain as well and how that's operating and and making us feel. There's obviously a connection there.
1: Yeah. Are you asking me to elaborate or
0: like is, Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there, do emotions feedback into basically that, that, um, that system?
1: Well, every experience that your brain makes, whether it's an emotion or a thought or, um you know a memory or uh a perception every experience that your brain makes um uh becomes um uh available for your brain to make again you know once your brain your brain is uh you know you can think about it like um right. like a like a recipe book right so it 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 remembers Um, it can remember past experiences. So once it's done the hard work of making an experience, then um, it can make it again. And it's kind of like driving, you know, uh, at first um, it takes a lot of effort. It, it requires a lot of effort to drive, but eventually it becomes really automatic. If you practice something enough, it becomes pretty automatic, meaning your brain can remember it pretty efficiently without a lot of effort. So, Uh, Every experience that you have is an opportunity for your brain to learn something new. If you practice enough, it becomes automatic. That's true uh, for negative experiences. And it's also true for positive experiences. You are uh, laying down the conditions uh, for your brain to remember and remake uh, the experience,
0: oh, okay. mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So with, with the emotion, I mean the purpose—not even the purpose, but when we feel that emotion, let's say we're we're angry and we lash out at something by yelling, um, I guess that just feeds back into uh, the system to be used for future experiences again.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: What I mean is that have a purpose like i'm just and this is again just going around in my head here but with that like let's just say if we got angry because someone pulled us off um what what is the the ultimate purpose of that is it is it to bring an, a sense of awareness to that situation so we can uh alter how it makes us feel
1: no the ultimate Purpose, if you can say that it has a purpose, is to just run things efficiently. The major consideration, the major biological consideration is metabolic efficiency. It's just um, much more energy efficient to remember something and use it as a prediction and correct that prediction if necessary um, than to. Uh, to make something completely new from scratch, it's much more metabolically efficient. And frankly, that's what your nervous system cares about. Your brain is only three pounds, approximately, three pounds, but it takes up about 20% of your entire metabolic budget. It's the most expensive organ in your body. Hmm. And about 60 to 80% of the metabolic cost of your brain is prediction. Um, so any, I mean, engineers have known this for a long time that in cybernetics, that if you want to control a system efficiently, you run a model of that system, make predictions about the system, and then correct those predictions. And that's what your brain is doing. Your brain is running a model of your body in the world. It's, it's um, using past experience to make guesses about what your body needs and uh, what uh, is going to happen in the world around you. Okay. Using past experience, it's just metabolically efficient to do it. All brains will work this way, Makes not sense. because not because of any uh, need for awareness. Um, even single cell organisms are, are work this way. Um, you know, little amoebas and little bacteria and stuff. They also work predictively. Um, some scientists believe that the structure of individual cells mirrors the structure of the, well, the, 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 the function of these, um, the individual organs in um, organelles in individual cells uh, work together the way networks in the brain work together.
0: So the emotional component um helps us really learn anything that's come through the era of prediction.
1: I wouldn't say that emotions necessarily help you learn. I think simple feelings help you learn. The sense that your your brain will only learn something if it predicts that the new information it's is relevant. Right. It's relevant to your body budget. If you need to use this information, if your brain predicts that it's useful information to use in the future, it will learn it. But learning is very metabolically expensive. There are two things that are most costly for your nervous system, metabolically speaking, right? One is moving, actually literally moving your body. And the other is learning because it requires a metabolic, uh, additional metabolic resources to change the firing of neurons, which is what um, is required when you learn something. And so those are the two biggest expenses that you have. And so your brain won't be, um, it's going to be like metabolically frugal, right? It's not going to be frivolous. It's not going to learn everything. It's not going to learn stuff that don't doesn't matter. It's going to learn stuff that uh, learn uh, patterns uh, that it predicts will be useful in the future. And when a brain becomes metabolically inefficient, um, you'll get sick. That's your immune system will get involved and it will believe that your body is sick. Um, um, so metabolic inefficiency, um, is at the heart of, um, you know, many, what are called metabolic diseases, diabetes, heart disease, um even some cancers have uh, a metabolic basis to them can you hear me uh hello yeah i can hear you okay there you are i don't know what just happened
0: no i just um can you hear me now
1: i can hear you now yeah
0: it's weird isn't it
1: it is weird
0: um, but on that note, we should probably wrap this up. I just thought because um, <laughs> i'm I'm taking up a lot of your time today, so I just thought uh the last that I had there on emotions again is just um you know, when I have a deep emotional experience, whether it's positive or negative, um certainly, well, I feel that that they become more remembered uh and then therefore probably drawn upon for future experiences as well.
1: yeah, I think it's just the thing to the thing to keep in mind is that the brain remembers when the brain remembers when it reconstitutes uh, a pattern in its wiring um you don't necessarily have the conscious experience of remembering it's you know your brain is kind of doing it um automated. on auto yeah yeah exactly yep. Hmm. yep
0: look interesting stuff and and uh i suppose i suppose 25 years if you research um uh, <laughs> helps and and you, you explain it so Um, I suppose uh, for someone like myself, we can understand it um, when you explain it in a lot of depth, but there's a lot more to it that I need to understand. And I'm I'm certainly fascinated by the field. And um, yeah, I I thank you again for your insight today. It's it's been great.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest.
0: So I hope I've asked some good questions, guys. um, I hope you've got some valuable information out of this interview, this second interview. Uh, with Lisa if you're interested listen to the first one if you haven't already but also uh, do grab a copy of the book it was in my top 10 of um, reads last year in 2017 so uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it too if you've enjoyed this conversation so uh, Lisa thank you again for this conversation and um, all the best for the future
1: my pleasure thank you so much take care
0: until next time guys peace passion and purpose Everything with greater purpose, and in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is the hidden why. My name is Lee Marnutzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.